marriage. It's an interesting topic when you start thinking about it. It's good to laugh at ourselves sometimes and realize we do some crazy, silly things in marriage. But must I also say that marriage is no laughing matter. For some of you in this room, you remember that special day. Maybe it wasn't too long ago and you're thinking, oh, it was beautiful, it was precious, it's still wonderful and great. Some of you are looking forward to that day. You're thinking, I look forward to it. It's coming, it's down the road, it's somewhere around the corner. For some of you though, that day has come and gone and now everything since then has fallen apart and you're like, what did I get myself into? And you're wondering if I can get a refund or can I get a redo or can I get a new partner? See, the truth is, to be really fulfilled in life, you must find the one. I believe that to be true. To really be fulfilled in life, to have everything that you're supposed to have for life to work the way it's supposed to work, you must find the one. Now, just hold that thought with me for a moment, because we'll get back to that thought in a moment. If you look at a lot of marriages, though, the results would tell you something totally different. Maybe some people actually found the wrong one. You start looking at the stats, according to Dr. Holly Holly Hine, author of Sexual Detour, nearly 70% of men and 60% of married women have an affair because the one that they thought was the right one is really, maybe in their minds, the wrong one. In the U.S., less than half of couples who marry will stay married for 15 years. Less than half will stay married for 15 years, and every 10 to 13 seconds, another couple goes through a divorce. I don't think that's God's plan. You'd have to admit, something's not working. Would you agree? Something's not working. I mean, just think about it for a moment. You take those stats and apply to some things of life. For instance, you're watching the news one night, and the news forecaster comes on, and he says, I'm going to give you the weather, and he gets down to the weather, and he says, hold on, I have another forecast for you that you need to be aware of. I want you to know that tomorrow when you go out and you send your children off to school, there's a 50% chance your child will be attacked by a bear. What would you do? Would you say, hurry, Johnny, run really fast? (laughs) We wouldn't do that, right? We'd be like, Johnny, I think tomorrow you're going to be sick for school. You'd be like, "Uh, let's stay home. Or you might say, hey, you know what? Because our house is attached to our garage, let's get in the car. And I'll back out really fast. There's any bears. I'll make sure I'll take one out and I'll get you to school. I mean, you're not going to send them out into the wild if there's a 50% chance of a bear attack. You're going to be like, I want to protect you. I'm going to do everything I can so that you cannot get mauled by a bear. Or imagine if you're online and you're looking up some information and this ad comes across your screen says, warning, warning, warning. There's a 50% chance that tomorrow when you go to work, you're going to get in a car accident and get killed by a wreck. You'd be like, hey, boss, I'm sick tomorrow. Or you'd be like, make sure your seatbelt is on. You make sure you're not texting. You're going to be paying attention to everything you do. Maybe going the speed limit. Or you think, you know, you know, normally I go to work about 7. It's pretty crowded. Let me start about 5 in the morning when there's a whole lot less cars in the road so that I can avoid that 50% chance of getting in that, in that wreck. But if that's the odds, I don't want that to happen to me. And so those are the odds. 50% chance or so that if you marry today that you will not make it 15 years later. And some of you in this room, you say, I've experienced that pain. And I don't bring this message today in condemnation. 
I bring it to help you from wherever you are. If you've experienced the pain of divorce and you're like, I'm one of those stats, I hope that what you learned today can help you wherever you're at today, whether it's single or remarried, that you say, you know what, I don't want to go through that again. Now, before we get too deep in the topic of marriage, I want to talk about one word, and that word is covenants. It's a lost word in our society. Let me talk about the word covenant for a moment because I believe this is a word that just is not discussed and we don't even understand it. Matter of fact, if we hear the word covenant, many times we run from it. See, in the Old Testament, it was used over 280 times. It's in the ancient world. It was used in the idea of striking a bargain. When we made an agreement or a bargain, there was a covenant and it was established between two uh, people in a relationship who struck up this idea. And when there was a lack of a legalized system, what they would do is they would then have a, a covenant to seal the agreement. And the covenant was sealed by some act or some kind of sign which invoked God as the enforcer of the agreement. So they were making this agreement before God and saying, God is my witness. And as God is my witness, I enter this covenant. The basic idea then is two parties establishing a relationship that carries an obligation underneath the watchful eye of God. In the Bible, the ceremonies that seal a covenant were many. For example, animal sacrifices sometimes seal a covenant. Uh, building a monument, sharing a meal, exchanging gifts or oaths. There was something usually involved in that covenant relationship. And a covenant was serious business. And once that covenant was established, the parties who were involved were expected to carry out their commitments with the understanding that God would bless them, bless them if they did. And so it was a huge deal on a covenant. In the Bible, we have many examples of covenants. God made a covenant with Abraham, obligating himself to make him the father of many nations. And the sign of the covenant was his circumcision. If you look at Jonathan and David, who made a covenant, assigning Jonathan the obligation of protecting David from King Saul, the exchange possessions to seal the covenant. Jeremiah 34 tells us about how King Zedekiah led the nation of Israel into a covenant to, re to renew their obedience to God's word, a covenant that was soon, unfortunately, it was violated. The entire structure of God's relationship between his chosen people and Israel follows the making of a covenant. This, this relationship that we enter into that is signed, sealed, and delivered, so to speak. There's several ingredients in a covenant from Scripture. One is there's an intent. The parties choose to enter into the relationship. There's a choice that demands obligations that they agree upon. There's a vow or a promise where the solemn words are given, an utterance intent that, hey, we're entering into this relationship and we're going to stay into this relationship and usually some words go along with that. There was obligations that were spelled out. You will do this. I will do this. This is the covenant relationship we now enter into. And the presence of God was acknowledged. We're entering this covenant, and we're doing it before God is our witness. And every time you study covenants in the Old Testament, you see where God was involved in that covenant, and then there was some sign or physical act to ratify and to remind them, hey, we entered into a covenant relationship. So covenant was a huge deal in the Old Testament. Maybe sometime we'll do a sermon series about covenants uh, because you go through and you study that and you see the in-depth of it, and then you, you look at that and you say, well, why does that apply to marriage? Because marriage is a covenant relationship, and it must not be taken lightly. You can't take it lightly. It's of utter importance. But in our culture today, 
what we're taught and what's modeled before us is an attitude that says, well, I might enter into marriage, I might not. But if I do enter into marriage, I'll give it a good shot. But if it doesn't work out, yeah, oh well. You move on your way, I'll move on my way, and we'll just let things go the way they go. That is not God's plan or idea for marriage. Listen to these passages of Scripture with me. Look at Malachi 2. You ask, why is it because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth? Because you have broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of youth. In other words, do not break the covenant that you entered into. I hate divorce. Now, don't misunderstand or misread what that says. I hate divorce. It does not say I hate the divorcee. So if you're in here today and you've been divorced, do not hear, I hate the divorcee. God hates divorce because he knows what it does to you and to your kids and to your life, but he does not hate the divorcee. He still loves you deeply. Says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. He's saying, hey, you entered into a covenant relationship with, with this young person. Stay in that covenant relationship. Don't break it. Look at Proverbs 2. It says it. Now the word it, you have to go, what's it? It is actually referring to wisdom here, and wisdom actually refers back to God. So you could say, God will save you also from the adulteress, the wayward wife with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. So in other words, this proverb is telling us at one time, this wayward, this, this adulterous woman had a covenant relationship that she walked away from, walked away from. but the proverb has warned us that when you walk in God, he guards your heart in your mind to protect you from breaking your covenant. Mark 10, they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. A covenant relationship. Because marriage is serious business. In God's eyes, it's a covenant, not one to be taken lightly. And so my hope is, I want to help you. What I want to do is ask you to do some very simple things that I think can have some big returns. The first thing is, I just want to invite you. Some of you in this room right now are going, well, I'm single. You're talking about marriage? When you're single, it's the best time to be thinking about what should marriage look like. It's not when you get into the marriage relationship and they say, now we'll figure it out. Or for some, I see in this room, teenagers. And you're thinking, I'm a teenager. Why are you, Brian? I don't want to hear about marriage. My mom and dad are married. I see that. That's good enough. No, as a teenager, this is a great time to be thinking about marriage and think, when I'm going to head into marriage, I want a biblical, Christ-centered marriage. And so when you start in the dating relationships and you go, I'm thinking about marriage, you say, I'm not going to date you. I'm not going to marry you unless you behave like my preacher taught me. 
Because if you learn it before you get into the relationship, there's a better chance of being successful. Some of you say, well, I've been married for 40 or 50 years. Brian, what can you teach me about marriage? Probably not a lot. Let's be honest. I've got to learn from you. But maybe I can share something with you today that you say, you know, Brian, my marriage is strong. I don't need to really work on it. But if you've been married for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, I hope God's putting people in your life that you go, you know what, I can invest in their marriage. And some of the things we learn together, maybe some tools in your toolbox, you go, you know what? I've been trying to say that to a young couple. Boy, you just said it differently. I'm going to help teach this young couple I'm investing in. And so the topic of marriage affects every one of us. And so be committed. Four weeks, four messages. The best is to be here. The best is to gather, as the scripture tells us together, gather together and, and be around the word of God and be around the church. However, if you miss or you have to miss, you know, we put all of our messages online. You go to our website, you can listen or see it. And then each week I'm going to give you a very doable, simple assignment. Something that you can put in practice to work on your marriage. Here is the truth we must lock in and truly believe and pursue. True fulfillment comes when you really find the one. True fulfillment comes when you really find a one. Now, I understand some of you are going, wait a minute, Brian, I'm not sure if I agree with you. And that's okay. But as I explain, I think you'll start to agree. An expert in the law asked Jesus and says, of all the commandments, what is the most important one? What's the big dog on the list? And what did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and with all your soul. This is the first and the greatest commandment. The first and the greatest. This is what he says is the first and the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God is the first and the greatest. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God first and then love your neighbor second. In other words, love God first and then love your spouse second because your spouse becomes your neighbor. Here's what happens though. Some guy meets this girl and he thinks, oh my goodness, she is gorgeous. She's the one I've been looking for. She's the one I've been thinking about. She is smart. She dresses well. She's graduated from college. She has all her teeth. And you start thinking, she's the one. Or some girl meets this guy. Oh my goodness, he's the hunk of all hunks I've been waiting for. He's smart. He's graduating college. He has a job. He has a car. He knows how to put gas in the car. I'm excited about that. He has all his teeth. And we go home. Mom and dad, guess what? I think I found the one. As Christians, it'd be great to go home one day and say, Mom and dad, guess what? I think I found my number two. not the way our culture thinks, is it? But see, if God is really number one, then what we're hoping and praying for is our number two. God, God wants to provide a number two. But how exciting it would be to go home to mom and dad and say, mom and dad, I found my number two. Now, many mom and dads are probably going to look and go, what are you talking about? But our spouses be number two. I love to hear that. God, God is... One, our spouses too. See, to be really fulfilled in life, you have to find the one, and God is number one. And if you haven't discovered for God to be number one, then your marriage tends to be 
little shaky and sometimes even at a wreck. See, this is the first and greatest commandment, to love your Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. In fact, do you know what the very first of the Ten Commandments is? What? Our God is a jealous God. Scripture says you shall have no other, what? God's before me. God's saying, i, I got to be number one. He's supposed to be the one. So for those of you who are not married, and you hope one day to be married, you got to hear this. If you're pursuing marriage more than you're pursuing God, that's idolatry. It's flat-out idolatry. If we're pursuing a relationship with somebody else more than we're pursuing God, we're putting them in front of God, and he's no longer number one because God wants to be your one. And to really be fulfilled in life, you have to find the one, and God is your one, and your spouse must be number two. Today we're going to start talking about four different vows or promises expired from Jimmy Evans' book, Marriage on the Rock. When you get married, you have certain vows or promises. For example, a grandma was watching her granddaughter play Barbie dolls with Ken and Barbie, and she was doing a wedding, and she said, now it's time for your vows. You have the right to bring silence. Anything you say, Ken, will be used against you. You may now kiss the bride. For some people, that may work. That may have been good vows. Those would not be bad. But we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. This is right after God had said that everything is good, and the only thing that was not good was that Adam was alone. And so God put in a deep sleep, took a rib out of Adam, formed Eve out of this. Adam woke up and looked at her and said, Whoa, man. And noticed that he had created a woman out of his rib. Look at Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. See, in the next four weeks, what I want us to do is I want to look at four promises of a Christ-centered marriage. That when you keep these four promises, you put Christ on the throne where he belongs. He's at first place in your life and in your relationship, which then develops a strong marriage. This week, we're looking at the priority promise. What priority is God in. Next week we're going to take a look at the pursuit promise because we tend to pursue what we don't have. And when we're dating, it's like game on, full on, I'm going to pursue him or I'm going to pursue her until I win the prize. But many times then once we win the prize, then we quit pursuing. And there's a pursuit that happens in marriage. Week number three, we're going to look at the partnership promise. We're going to see how to biblically function in marriage and it's not about me and we're going to discover the we and how important the we is in marriage and week four we're going to take a look at the purity promise and we're going to learn to be totally emotionally and spiritually vulnerable and, and transparent in conversation and build a deep intimate relationship that sometimes we don't even know is possible but today this priority promise genesis 2 24 for this reason a man will leave his father and mother in the original Hebrew language, the word leave means to loosen, it means to relinquish, it means to let go of what you are holding on to and commit to something new, to let go of one thing and commit to something else. For example, a lot of people don't realize this, but God is always supposed to be your one, and before you're married, then your parents are your number two in a relationship structure that is God-ordained priorities. And so your parents should be number two. You'll always honor your mother and father. But before you are married, they should be in your number two slot with God number one. And God is your number one. Your parents number two. When we do that and parents are living biblically, then life is balanced out correctly. Most people don't live that way, but that is basically the biblical order of relationships. 
Now, when you get married, God continues to be your number one. Think of it as a tra- tra- trapeze artist at a circus. Up in the very top of that is a good, strong frame that a trapeze is then connected to. And if God is the frame that the trapeze is connected to, if you're swinging on that trapeze, what happens is that swing is going, and your mom and dad are holding on to the swing, and you're holding on to your mom and dad. But when you enter into the marriage relationship, it's like you now swung over here. You let go of mom and dad, and now you grab onto your spouse, to number two, God number one, the frame that holds it all together. Then your spouse, and you grab onto that spouse, there's actually a letting go, and now your spouse replaces mom and dad, where mom and dad are no longer number two. Which leads to a very simple foundational principle and a promise. Write this down. I promise that God will be my number one priority, and my spouse will be my number two. If you get that straight in your life and in your marriage, a lot of things can be corrected. A lot of things. Say that, say, repeat this after me. I promise that God will be my number one priority, and my spouse will be my number two. When we really live that out, it's amazing how much things get in line. If your marriage is not working as you know it should, you're under a lot of stress and turmoil. Marriage is difficult. There's not a lot of joy. There's not a lot of health. You know, man, things are just not right, but I don't know what's not right, and I need to get it fixed. I need some help. I need some direction. We are just existing in this home. There's not a much happening, but boy, we're still married. If you feel that way, I can make a guarantee to you today that you have a priority out of line. Either yourself or your spouse or both of you where God is not number one. In my 20, nearly 25 years of ministry, I've not had people come in asking for marriage help when both the husband and the wife come in and they are both pursuing God as their number one. Sometimes both of them are not pursuing. Sometimes the husband is and the wife's not. Sometimes the wife is and the husband's not. But when both people put God as number one and they say, I'm pursuing him as number one in my life, it's amazing how healthy a marriage can be. If your marriage is not functioning as you know God would have it, I promise you that there's some priorities that are out of line. God is supposed to be one. Your spouse is supposed to be number two. But all of a sudden, there's all these things that start competing And they start to climb up the ladder. For example, many of you, just practically, if you're just honest with yourself, you would say that your children probably have moved up the priority list. Stop and think about it for a moment. God, one. Spouse, two. Children, three. Jobs and everything else down the line. But what happens many times is children move up to number two and then children move up to number one. And when that priority starts to happen, it starts to really hurt a marriage. It's not a bad thing. Your children are good things. These kids we see running around this place, they're good things. You're obviously called to invest in them. You're called to love them. But what happens is without even realizing it, they climb the ladder. And long before they become a dominant spot, and many are what you call, or psychologists would call, child-centered parents. I think the Bible would call that child idolatry or child worship. 
Because we've allowed our children to be elevated up the line where they run the household. And we dictate our schedules and our lives around our children. Whatever Johnny or Sally want to do, then we go and do that. Even to the detriment, we say, well, we'll skip. We won't be in a Bible study this season. Oh, we won't go to church because you have this going on. And we miss because of our children's lives. It's a major challenge in America. Our children have elevated to the number one spot. Your priorities, God one, spouse number two, and then children number three. And we say, well, it feels right because you love your children so much. It just feels right to give them everything I can possibly give them, do everything I can for them because that feels right. But sometimes even when we feel right, it can be totally wrong. If we don't keep God number one, our spouse number two, ten years down the road, we're not going to have anything to give our children. So many things that compete for our priorities. Our career can move right on up the ladder. And all of a sudden that passes our children, that passes our spouse, that passes God. And our career becomes number one. Our home can move right up. Well, I want the best, beautiful, greatest home. And so you just work to to the end taking care of your home. Our physical appearance can become that. The church can even become that. Well, I want to serve so well in the church. And you want to do so good that the church becomes number one. And God and your spouse or else gets pushed down the bottom. There are all sorts of things you name it, it could be just your online activity. Stop and think about it. Some of you, honest to goodness, spend more time with your Facebook friends or your Twittering or your blogs than you do with your spouse. Or God. And you're wondering, why are things not working out? Because you've fallen in love with an electronic device and allow it to replace who God should be in your life. God is to be your number one priority, your spouse to be your number two. When those priorities are aligned, your marriage will always suffer. I say this humbly, and I say this out of a spirit of repentance, because I've battled to keep balance in my life and keep my priorities straight. I have struggled in 23 years of marriage to keep Brian a second and keep God number one. Twice in our marriage, we've had to seek outside Christian counseling to say, we're not healthy, help us out. And so I don't speak from a spot of, I've got this all figured out. I can tell you at times it has been rough in the journey. Twice in our life, it's, oh, are we going to make it through this rough spot or not? And then you go and talk to some friends and some Christian counselors and say, your priorities are out of line. Let's put God back on the throne where God belongs. Let's put our spouse on our number two slot. Let's put the other things on down there. Because your marriage will suffer. Men, let me talk to you for a minute, man to man. If we could, we'd clear the room and say, ladies, get out of here. We've got to talk for a few minutes. How many of you would say you have a natural desire to protect? Raise your hand, guys. Be brave. Most, I'd say most guys have that natural desire to protect. It's in our nature we want to protect. I, I would go to every length to, to protect Brianna and my kids. I'll do everything in my power to keep them safe. And you would do the same thing for your family. There's just this desire to protect. In fact, I'm curious, how many of you, without even thinking about it, would willing to give your life for your family or some of you love? I'll go and protect them. Most of us would. We'll jump into a fire. We'll go rescue somebody. We'll go protect somebody. We'll do anything we can to protect or help somebody. Here's the deal. God is not asking us men to die for someone that you love as much as he's asking you to live for somebody that you love. 
God is not asking you as much to die for somebody you love. He's asking you to live for somebody you love, to live for them, to live for God. Your number one priority then, gentlemen, is you are, to, as a married man, to lay down your life and to serve your number two, your bride. You are only called to give your life for two things, not your career, not for hunting, not for sports. It's not for the advancement of financial standings. It's for Jesus and your wife, guys. So God calls us to, as many calls us, love me with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love your neighbor, your spouse. Secondly, Scripture says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as just as Christ loved the church. And, and how did he love her? Scripture says he what? He gave himself up for her. I would challenge you to protect your number two. So how do you do that? Well, certainly protect physically. Usually the man's stronger. If someone attacks, you protect your loved one. I would argue also protect spiritually. What does that mean? That means, gentlemen, we are the spiritual leaders in a home according to biblical guidance, according to God's guidance. We do whatever we take, whatever we can in our family to make God a number one priority. Unfortunately, because of the dumbing down of America and men, we kind of take a back seat and say, well, whatever my wife wants. I can't tell you how many guys I have conversations with. They're like, yeah, we'll go to church or my wife wants to go to church. Let's we'll do whatever we're going to do, whatever she, whatever she directs. Guys, it's time for us as men to take ownership of our spiritual uh, responsibility, protect our family spiritually, and guide our family to, to loving God. Guide our family to, to worship. Guide our family to Bible study. Guide our family to prayer. Guide our family to live out biblical priorities. I'd argue we protect financially. What does that mean? That means you don't go the way of the world. You don't sell out and get into kinds of, all kinds of debt and a big old mess that creates all kinds of stress. Guys, if you don't understand this, financial security means more to your wife than you will ever realize. And when you have tons of debts and tons of responsibilities that are overwhelming your family, it's stressing your wife out. One of the best things you can do is manage money well and honor God. So we just finished just talking about honor God with the tithe. Honor God with your offerings. Say, we're going to be a Christ-centered family. We're going to honor God with our money. You protect her heart relationally. You know what, guys? You guard your eyes. You guard your eyes so that your spouse never has to worry. Is he looking at that woman? Is he on the internet looking at the wrong sites? Is he in some place he shouldn't be? You guard and protect her heart relationally so she never has a doubt that your eyes are for her and for her alone. You guard her emotionally by telling her and showing her that you are number two, that there is no competing force. I'll set aside the job. I'll set aside the technology. I'll set aside all these things that are distractions. I want you to be number two. And God is one. And you can trust that you're number two. And you guard and protect your family by showing her that, by modeling that. Gentlemen, I would tell you all day long, you protect the priorities. You do that. You protect. You protect so much that you'll fight to a death. And in the same way, you be that aggressive against Satan's attacks. And when he says, I'm coming after your marriage, you say, no, you're not. Satan, you're not coming for my marriage. I am the, I'm the man of house, and we are going to protect this marriage. And I'm going to stand up, I'm going to fight for it, and I'm going to keep priorities right. We have to do it all the time. I have to say to my wife many times, you know what, honey, I know everybody else may be doing that. I know this seems like it's the best thing because our culture does, but we're not going to do that because we're a different family. And we serve a, a God who is different than this world. Normal is a 50% divorce, and we're not going to be there. We're not going to be normal. We're going we're to guard 
number one relationship, that's Christ. He's going to be number one. And we'll be number two, and our family will be number three. That's a perspective guy to guy. Men, I put a lot of responsibility upon us because I think the Scripture puts a lot of responsibility on us. And your wives are looking for you to guide them and protect them and show that God is number one and they're number two. Let me close with a simple challenge. I told you to begin this message each week. I want to have a simple challenge you can do. Here's a simple prayer challenge. For those of you who are not married, I challenge you this is start your day. And you, you could pray this maybe with an accountability partner or someone else in your life. And you say, God, I want you to be number one in my life. I hope to be married one day in the future. But God, help me to put you number one. That's a simple prayer that as a single person, you can pray. For those of you that are married, I'd invite you, if it's just 30 seconds a day, to grab your spouse's hand over the next seven days. Maybe it's as you're lying down to bed, or maybe it's when you get up in the morning, a simple prayer that says, God, help us to make you number one. A simple prayer. If you're in the middle of a marriage trial or struggle right now, and you're trying to figure it all out, quit trying to figure it all out. You say, what? We got a mess on our hands. Yeah, quit trying to figure it out because if you're in a mess, it's because God's not number one. Grab your spouse's hand. Gentlemen, grab your wife's hand. And just a simple prayer. God, we need you to be number one. Show us how to do that. And you start praying that for the next seven days. And I chance that some of you will say, well, we've continued that. It's gone on for two weeks or three weeks or four weeks or now we've been doing it for six months. As maybe you start praying, God, I want you to be number one, how he'll start showing up and showing you how to make him number one. And it's amazing how when he becomes number one, many of the challenges and struggles you are facing start to solve, start to solve the problems themselves. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, seek first. Seek first. You see that text? Don't seek second, don't seek third, don't seek somewhere down the line. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, make me number one. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then everything else will be added onto you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then your marriage will be strong. And then your marriage will be repaired. And then your marriage will be Christ-centered. You can finish it off with that kind of statement. You seek first God. I promise that God will be my number one priority and my spouse will be my number two. Heavenly Father, it's easier to stand up here, Lord, and preach this than it is to actually do it. Everything in our culture, God, just screams and yells at us that messes up the priorities of life. Everything in our culture, Lord, tempts us to get things out of line where you're not number one and you're just part of our life somewhere down the mix. Father, would you do a work of conviction in this room right now that we want to reorder our priorities if you're not one? Lord, would you do a work of repentance in this room right now that if you haven't been one, we would repent 
Would you do a work of renewal in this room right now that if you haven't been one over one, Lord, we would repent, we would renew that commitment for you to be first place. Father, I pray for those in this room that this, uh, this message is maybe a little hard to hear because maybe the marriage is in a struggle. I pray you help that couple sitting here with that thought. I pray, Lord, for those that this is a little bit tough because maybe they've been through the struggle and have faced divorce. And I pray, Lord, they hear more than anything that you love them, that you love them and you have a great plan for them even though maybe they've walked through divorce. And if marriage is in the future, Lord, that you, uh, you have a great plan of how to make it great the second time around. Father, I pray that we can embrace your principles for living that we will desire your principles, that we will want to walk in your principles. We don't just hear this message and go home, Lord, that we hear this message and we put it to action. Father, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.